You're listening to Path of Love with David Youngren. To learn more about us, visit pathoflovecenter.com. Welcome to the Path of Love. I'm Marcus Noel. Uh, we are talking about David Youngren's book, Awakening to I Am Love. We're on chapter five, and chapter five is entitled The Illusion of Good and Evil. This chapter is an interesting chapter, and it opens up your mind to a lot of thoughts and things. And we're going to go into a deeper dive with David about this chapter. So listen in. Here we go. Hey, David, how you doing? You know, that's a good introduction. I don't know if we can live up to that, but uh, we, we will at least try, I guess. But it, I'm doing really good, by the way. And it's so good to see you again. And uh, uh, love our conversations that we do this on a, on a weekly basis. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's been great um, doing this with you and all the way up to chapter four. And now we're on chapter five, the illusion of good and evil. Um, I know you started out with a story in there about you uh, being on a as a kid, uh, pretending that you were a pilot on a tree branch. Um, <laughs> and, and did the tree branch ever break? <laughs> <laughs> it did break. You know, it's interesting when you bring up the story in preparation for today, I thought, well, I should read this chapter to kind of, because it's been a couple of years since I wrote it. And so I should read this chapter to just kind of uh, get a better understanding of what I wrote about. And, um, and I had forgotten about the story. And of course, it, that I actually included the story. I hadn't forgotten the story in itself of what happened, but I had forgotten that I had included mm -hmm. that story in the book. And it's quite an interesting thing that actually happened, at least it was to me, that, you know, little kids sitting up there in the tree and suddenly, try, you know, trying to be a pilot and and, uh, and then kind of the branch breaking and I'm falling flat on my face. And you can just imagine what happened. So it was not a pretty picture, but I think it was a, it, it has a kind of a message to it in that the ego can get us all in trouble. And, you know, I thought I was a pilot. We identify with different things in our lives. And as we have discussed for the last number of episodes, your ego can really get you in trouble. And I learned the hard way that day. Yeah, you said that when you get too cocky about your own ability, uh, you may experience a, hum a humiliating fall. In other words, the ego has an uncanny ability to get us all into trouble. So that 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 seems like perspective in what you were just saying. A humiliating fall on many different levels. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so that being said, you also mentioned about trees. And this that's more so um where the the chapter is is discussing is about different forms of trees in in the in the Bible are in, in in life and what their definitions are, their symbolism or symbols is actually is. Trees, uh, not just in of course in the in the Bible or in the Christian tradition, but also in in Buddhism, for example, in Hinduism, trees play this important role. And is there's something fascinating about trees? I don't know if you you know, you have told me, of course, a story about the redwood trees, and we have we brought it up a few times now. But there's something fascinating about trees, and and when I began to look at, for example, from a biblical point of view, and I noticed, for example, that you know Buddha sat on the tree for 49 days, and then he had an enlightenment. But then you also come into the Christian tradition, and and we hear now it starts with trees, basically the beginning of the book is about trees. The middle of the book or the central theme of the Bible is a tree, the cross, and the ending in the book of Revelation, it ends on trees. So trees is kind of spread out throughout the Bible. And that is very, very fascinating. It is very fascinating. And it, it it's when you read this chapter, it really opens your eyes to the different symbols that trees have. So, David, you stated in your book that as we have seen throughout history, the Bible can be used as a weapon of intolerance, inequalities, bigotry, um, misogyny, racism, 
xenophobia, and even war. Can you explain a little bit more how what you meant in that? A lot of people fall within these two camps when they look at the Bible. For, for some people, it's a literal book. And for other people, it is an old, old story that has no relevance today. And they use, of course, the many passages in the Bible that literally seems to indicate intolerance, inequality, bigotry, and xenophobia, and racism, and so on. Even slavery is not necessarily spoken against in many ways in the Bible. So people say, well, you know, that the Bible is not relevant anymore. And so you have, you have people who are literalists, but who many of them are not really literalists because they don't believe in a lot of these extreme views. But then you have other people just think it's a, an old, old story. So for me, I you know, have someone who studied the Bible for years and actually have taught the Bible for years, many years ago, as I was a kind of a previous chapter in my life, as I was a pastor and, and a, as a professor of a college, a, a theological college, I taught the Bible. And, and of course, teaching the Bible, eventually, if you study it long and hard enough, raises all kinds of questions. It's very easy to doubt and begin to question the validity of the Bible as being word of God. And by the way, that terminology is never even used in reference to the Bible in the Bible. But but that's how many people perceive it. So there, there was all these different questions that I started having in my mind. What is the Bible? Is it out of touch? Is it morally suspect? It's, it's a lot of different things in there that seems a little bit strange. But what I discovered was that for me, the Bible is worth reading because I recognized that the Bible is not meant to be a history book where you agree with everything. You know, we can have the discussion, did Moses part the Red Sea? Did God create the earth in six days? Now, some of this does not make any sense to any of us, and not to me either. And that is not going to sit well with some of my Christian friends. But, but then we kind of say, well, that just proves that the Bible is of no value. It's, it's you know, it's not, you can't trust it for, for its history. And then people say, well, you know, it's a theological discourse. It's, it's uh, a manual of sort where we actually learn how to live and that tells us to live this and do that and do everything else. But there are a lot of things in there, as I said, that are quite suspect, including even condoning slavery and, you know, even mistreatment of women. You see a lot of these things in the Bible. And so, that to me is not really what the Bible is. And even you, people say, well, it's full of inconsistencies, and there are inconsistencies. There's no question about that. But when I began to look at the Bible, I realized it's not just one book. It is actually six, six books and written by 40-some authors over a period of 1,500 to 2,000 years. That's a long period of time. And they all lived in different times in history and in different areas. And you can imagine how much the world has changed in the last 100 years. In the last 10 years, the world has changed a lot. And that's only here in the United States. And in other countries, it's changing as well. But now the world is much more global because we have internet and we're able to fly and we're able to travel around the world. We basically know what's going on around the world. But back in those days, you may have lived 20 miles or 20 kilometers away, and people lived completely differently. And then think about it, 100 years or 200 years, and there were vast differences between people. So when we read the Bible and we come to find to some kind of, a, looking for some kind of unified message that this is how we live, we just follow what the Bible says, we, we're missing the point of the Bible. The Bible is written over a period of time and where people were literally trying to figure God out, trying to discern God and their purpose for life and interacting with what they perceived to be God in the time and place they lived. 
And that is so important for us to understand because in the beginning of the first books, and, and you remember when we talked about the stages of consciousness, you literally see the stages of consciousness in the book, in, in the Bible. You see them there in full display until you finally see in Jesus this Christ-centric consciousness that we talked about earlier. So what you see is in the Bible that God was much more portrayed in the earlier books as very vindictive, very controlling, very much warmongering. He was petty. And then at the end of the Bible, he's referred to as love. So even in a, in a story, for example, and I think, and I, I want to make sure that you jump in here anytime, but I remember this story in, in the book of Samuels. There's a story about how David took a survey of the nation of Israel. And for some reason, he didn't do it the right way. And it says that God or Yahweh killed 70,000 people. Well, that to me doesn't sound a whole lot like love, right? But that's what it says in the book of Samuel that Yahweh killed 70,000 people. Now you then move forward 350 years and or 350 to 400 years. Now the book of Chronicles is written. And the book of Chronicles tell the same story, but they tell it from the perspective of 400 years later. Now that same passage says that Satan, not Yahweh, but Satan, which is Satan, killed the 70,000 people. So people say, well, that just proves a contradiction. No, what that indicates is that there is a progress. There's an evolution of sort that is taking place. There is a movement throughout history toward what some would call the omega point. And it's, it's part of the evolution of humanity where we're moving toward a more unitive, a unifying toward oneness and what, what we see in Jesus. He, Jesus was in the naked in the prisoners and, and he also broke down the walls between nations and nationalities and all of that, between races, Jesus was in everyone. And so we see that there is this movement throughout the Bible toward that. And so if we read the Bible that way, it suddenly makes sense. But do you think that the Bible is relevant in today's day and age? And the reason I ask that is because you have so many things that happen in today's day. If the Bible was written in the 1900s, uh, to 2021 today, you would have pandemics. You'd already have gone through two pandemics by then. Um, and COVID being the last one, you would have multiple uh, deaths. And they would say that God took people through the pandemic or God took this through these times. I mean, and then World wars, on top of that, a lot of you know, wars, things, yeah. wars, and then you have social media and you have uh, mental health issues. I mean, you have all these types of things that people go through to this day. How can the Bible help them in that situation? Is that also a path of moving forward or transitioning or seeing life as a, a, a escalator that's constantly moving and changing, um, leading you up a path towards something greater? I'm just reading something I wrote here in, in, the, in, the, in the book, and maybe that will answer the question better than possibly that I can say myself right now. The Bible helps us understand that we should not get stuck in traditions that divide and separate but rather follow the trajectory of history toward a more inclusive world. From that perspective, the mysteries, plots, characters, struggles, and victories of the Bible are there to reflect upon, question, prod, and guide us toward a more unifying and compassionate Christ-centric consciousness. And I think that that is a better way to read the Bible. In other words, you're not going there to find facts about history. You're not going to debate whether this happened or that happened. You're not going there to find some kind of theological discourse. You're going into the Bible the way that 
the ancient scribes did. And even in Jesus' days, you see this, the way they read, read their ancient scriptures. You go there to prod, to find out what people were thinking back in those days and what made them then, how did they respond to that? What, what caused their actions to change because of that? And that makes the Bible incredibly fascinating when you begin to think in those terms, when you look at the deeper meaning, when you actually begin to reflect on the deeper meaning, and, and as we're going to see in just a few moments as we discuss, uh, I think you will probably bring up the questions because that's most of the book, the trees in the garden and what they represent. So you also said it's a story about humanity quest to understand the purpose of life by interacting with what they perceived to be God. Uh, in the time and place they lived. So that's like you stated earlier, it's in the Bible, everyone lived in a different era, different time. And like you said, 20 kilometers or 20 miles can be another world. So that everyone's perception was based upon their reality. Probably the biggest mistake that you see today, especially in more of the evangelical churches, is that we interpret the Bible, an ancient text, with a 2020 lens on the world. And when we do that, we completely mess it up. We do not understand the actual backdrop of what happened and and why it was said that way like there's so many things that just doesn't make sense when we look at it that way for example just think about it you see this narrative throughout the bible that there is a progression of thought there's a pointing towards something there they're always moving in a direction and why would we think that it would stop in the bible why would we think that over these 2,000 years and finally everything has arrived? No, even in the New Testament, even in Paul's day, he did not condemn slavery, for example. You would think that that is unacceptable. Why wouldn't he uh, condemn slavery? Well, because back in the day, now he, he said that you should treat your slaves well and, and slaves, you should, you know, obey your masters. He said all those different things, and but that doesn't make any sense to the way we see the world today, but it made sense back in those days, and that was progress to them. So even if you look at the story, for example, of the Sabbath, you know, don't break the Sabbath, we think, well, this is another rule that God gave to them. Well, understand the backdrop of that story. They had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years and worked seven days a week from sunrise to sundown, that taking the Sabbath is not meant as some kind of a hardship. It was meant as a form of vacation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was a step forward. And so what you see when you begin to read the Bible, we got, we got to look at it from a different lens where we begin to see, okay, well, we are moving toward a point. There is a point that we're moving toward. And, and, and some people call it the omega point. So you have the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning and then we're moving toward this new type of living that we see Jesus as an archetype of. And we see that, okay, this is really what the message of Jesus is. He's showing us a better way to live and interact with one another. So you stated moving to a point. And so you have to begin somewhere. So that brings me back to your point with Adam and Eve. Um, and the Garden of Eden. You, you describe the Garden of Eden as a Hebrew uh, explanation, I believe. And in that, those words, it was more described as a spiritual place instead of a physical place. Do you believe that a Garden of Eden is more of a spiritual place? place between you, me, Adam, Eve with God, than it is more of a physical place to actual walk through? Think about it this way, and I'm not necessarily 
people can believe whatever they want to believe. And I don't necessarily know whether that makes a difference. But if we think and we try to share this story with a talking snake and then a man and a woman and, and God going for a walk in the forest uh, in the morning, and it seems as not necessarily something that we will write about today. It's not the way we see God. It's not the way we understand the world. And so then people who are skeptics will say, well, look at that story, just a ridiculous story. And then we have some Christians who fight over whether that story is true or not true. And then it loses its true essence or it loses its true meaning because we get so boggled down in trying to figure out whether that story is true or not. And for any person who has a little bit of who, who has not been indoctrinated too much in just believing everything as, as it really, this is the way it happened. You actually begin to question that this doesn't sound very reasonable, but if you actually approach this, if you look at this and you begin to look at a deeper meaning that there is, there is a story here that we can prod, that we can actually look at, and maybe we can learn something about us. Maybe we can learn something about human nature. Maybe we can learn something about where we are moving as a human nature. And so this word, when you actually, and this was not something that was, is, is, is for, is, begins with me. This is something that the early church fathers, even the Jewish scribes going back to thousands of years, most of those did not believe, most of them did not believe that this story was an actual true story they believed it had a deeper meaning. So when you look and you brought up this great example, the Garden of Eden, for example. Well, the Garden of Eden, the word, there's another word very similar to the Garden of Eden, which is Gan Eden, which means heaven. Now, that's kind of interesting because when you actually look at the word heaven, it can also mean delight, presence, moment, now, eternal. And Many spiritual traditions speak of heaven, not as a place up there somewhere, some far, place far away, different space, but as a dimension within all of us where God, as we talked about earlier, in God we live and move and have our being. God is above all, through all, and in all. It's a place of that invisible realm, this indivisible and invisible realm that permeates with love, that permeates with joy and peace. And that ultimately is heaven. And the earth then is symbolic of creation. It's symbolic of our bodies and our minds. So when you begin to look at it that way, it kind of makes more sense that this Garden of Eden is more of a spiritual place. So, yeah, the snake speaking does sound like it's a little bit out of reach and out of thought. But there's also other places in the Bible where an animal speaks, like Balaam and the donkey. Um, so it's not too far out of reach. But at the same time, in the Garden of Eden, it also talks about sin, and the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. Can you explain the tree of knowledge to tree of death? When you begin to understand trees, when you really understand what is really going on in the Bible, what really this message of the Bible is, it's all wrapped up in these two trees that you make reference to. One is the tree of life and one is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what it, it, it talks about what it means to be human, what it means to, to live this kind of life. And we've been talking about ego, and this whole section in the book is about the ego. And what I'm suggesting to you and to our audience is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil really represents the ego. You mentioned sin earlier. The word sin is not mentioned here. But even that word has all kinds of connotations that are not true. 
we think of it as okay, you may, you you did a did something bad. You shouldn't have done that. You lied. You stole. You broke the commandments. You sinned. But sin, if you actually study the original text, it means to miss the mark. To miss the mark about what? About who you are. That's essentially what sin is. We basically live out who we believe ourselves to be. So if you think that you are a liar, you will continue to lie. If subconsciously you've been programmed to think that you're a liar, you will live out that reality. And so we have missed the mark of who we are because we have basically eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So let me explain what this knowledge of good and evil is. So this tree of knowledge of good and evil is. First of all, knowledge is discernment. It means to perceive, to discriminate, to judge, to know by experience. And good and evil suggests that there is right and wrong. And so when the aid of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was not what they were supposed to eat of, what did they do? They learned to discern, to perceive what is good and what is evil. This created a continuum where you think of on one end you have evil and the other hand you have good. Now, you say, well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Why is good and evil? Like, you know, that's a good thing. We should know, more people should know what's right and wrong. People should know what's right and wrong and do what's good and what is right. Well, the problem is that in order for you to know, in order for you to perceive, in order for you to judge what is good and evil, the only way that truly it works is through guilt. So you say, well, guilt is a good thing. It stops you from doing bad stuff. No, it does not. In fact, it reinforces the shame that we are that terrible person. Guilt, of course, and love are, of course, can never coexist. When we're experiencing guilt, for example, we are essentially saying that we are not worthy of unconditional love. Because think about it, if, you, if you're feeling guilty, and you're feeling terrible about yourself, what you're saying is unconditional love is not enough for me. I need to pay my dues. I need to make things right in order for me to be loved and accepted and approved again. And so what happens is this, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and, and there's so much we can get into this, and I encourage people to read this because I think they will a lot better than I'm able to explain it, but get a better handle of what this means. But it basically separate you from an awareness of God or of heaven or of presence, the garden of Eden within you, that, that dimension within you where you are one with God, where you are one with the divine presence, where you are completely aware of the presence of God that permeates with love and that permeates with peace. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil creates this continuum where you have to be good and you have to avoid evil. And that leads to all kinds of problems because we are no longer, because we're separated from good and evil, we no longer know how to discern what is good. In fact, we create good out of that which we're good at rather than uh, truly what is good. And that is unconditional love. So we create, and even our God then becomes a, a, representation of what we consider the greatest good. So that separation uh, and a knowledge of good and evil, when you never had a definition of good, you never had a definition of evil, your conscious mind creates that definition of good and creates that definition of evil when you have separated. So do you feel that a lot of people say that or interpret the Bible, God says that this is bad, this is good, when it was more so your conscious mind that created those boundaries and those good and evil things um, in life. Think about it this way, Marcus. The Bible, and I think going back to what we talked about the Bible earlier, the Bible is a story about this good and evil tree. 
and how they all had a different perception of what was good throughout different times and wherever they lived. And so it was always evolving. What is good at one time is now evil in another time. For example, the story I told earlier. So we see this progression throughout and this, how this tree of good and evil is always shifting. So God gave the Ten Commandments, but then in the New Testament, it says that, you know, we're no longer under the Ten Commandments. And so there is just like, is God changing or what is going on here? Is there, is, is there a broader, more inclusive message? Is there a movement? Is, is there a spirit in action that is where we're evolving to the point where we now are moving away from the egoic consciousness that we have discussed in previous episodes to a Christ-centric consciousness where that tree of knowledge of good and evil is no longer part of our inner programming, the way we live and see and interact with the world. So that kind of brings me to a question. And you have sin, you said, is, is it a separation? Sin is a to miss the mark. Death is separation. So, for example, in the Garden of Eden, it says that the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically, so obviously they were not referring to physical death. But then if you actually look at the word death, it means separation. So how were they separated? The Consciousness of knowledge of good and evil, as I said, created this guilt that now separated them from an awareness of God within them. This awareness that permeated with love. In other words, the heart was shut. The heart was closed because now they perceived that in order to be accepted and approved and to be loved, they had to be good and avoid evil. And that distorted what it was, was good, and that distorted what was evil. Reality is that God's presence is always there, that God's presence is always within us. And that's why the book is called Awakening to I Am Love, because it's an awakening that takes place where we actually begin to see, oh, I thought God was over there. I thought I had to do this. I thought I had to go to church. I thought I had to go to this temple. I thought I had to go... Pray all, pray all these prayers. I thought I had to do all these different things, and then maybe God would approve of me, or I had to get everything right in my life. No, it's about awakening to that deepest part within you. When you're free, when you're free from this knowledge of good and evil, this continual knowledge of good and evil, when you die to that, which is part of the ego, when you die to that, now you come alive, now that there's a resurrection and you come alive to the fact that you've always been secure, that God is always with you, God is within you at all times. So a lot of people, um, and going back to sin, they say that don't be a sinner, don't be, don't sin. Uh, and sin means in, in, I don't want to say today's day and age, but in and an opposite definition of what you said as missing the mark, it's lying or stealing or cheating, something along the lines of like the Ten Commandments. So when Jesus went into the church and was upset about all of the panhandlers and the people inside of his church, and went in there and flipped over tables and, you know, whipped them out of the church and said, that's God's house. And this is where God's supposed to be. In today's day and age, just like you said, it's different eras. We would see that as, look at this crazy guy going inside the church and going crazy on that. And we call that sin and messing up things and destruction. So, I'm asking if sin is missing the mark and God was without sin, does that mean our definition of sin and reality of life has been distorted based upon 
us not being aware? It's very difficult to explain some of these concepts. And it's almost like you have to see things from a different perspective. You have to wake into this before you actually see it. So it's so foreign. So when I share this with some of my friends, Christian friends, they have a hard time wrapping their heads around this. But what, what, what I'm really saying is this, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, sin, whatever you call it, the ego, all related, they're all interrelated. It's the cause of our pain, it's the cause of our dysfunction, it's the cause of all the turmoil and war and conflict between us. It's a cause of a lot of different things. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, sin, the law, and all these concepts are very much related. So when I say sin is to miss the mark of who you are, I'm saying to you is what I'm saying to you is this sin is thinking that we are separated from God. Sin is thinking that um, God is not within us. He's far away somewhere. He's sitting in some galactical throne far away. Sin is not understanding. Sin is thinking that we are sinners, that we're lost, that we're hopefully, we're, we're no good for nothing. And, and that, you know, God is basically, we're depraved humans and there's nothing good within us. That's sin because it's missing the mark of knowing who you are. And when you awaken to your true essence, when you awaken to that dimension, which is beyond thoughts, which is beyond mental concepts, which is beyond the way you see yourself based on that external programming, based on things that people, how people have defined you, based on your heart's condition of not feeling enough, feeling good enough. When you wake into that dimension within you, suddenly you come into this realm of unconditional love. And when you enter into this place of unconditional love, you now enter into the flow of life and into the flow of unconditional love. So now it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's no longer matter of that, matter of that. But but you begin to see yourself in another person. So I'm not going to steal from you, Marcus, not because there is some law, because there's some police officer up in heaven waiting to judge me and send me down to hell for eternity. No, it's because I have awakened to who I am. And I am love. And love, because I'm aware of this love within me, I never even have any kind of a thought or inclination to steal from you. There's a difference there. And that's that's what we're talking about here. There is a whole way of seeing things, a whole way of perceiving things that is not based on this fallacy or this illusion of knowledge of good and evil that is ultimately rooted in the ego and in sin, missing the mark about who we are. So which brings me back to how the tree, how does the tree impact us today? Um you have that as one of your subcategories in chapter five. And you said, first, the tree is a symbol of how you perceive yourself and experience the world. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, we view the world through the prism of good and evil. And we cannot perceive the union that we share with all. The union that we saw that Jesus uh, was awakened to that he was in the prisoner, he was in the naked, the father was in him and he was in the father and Jesus was in them and in everyone and God was in everyone. They cannot perceive that. So the knowledge of good and evil separates us from awareness of the dimension within us that is God, the dimension within us where love, grace and peace reside. So yeah, and that distorts how we see the world. And then you said, second, the mindset of knowledge of good and evil raised in this story is the cause of division in the world and is the enemy of oneness and love. Because knowledge of good and evil has an agenda. And what is the agenda? It's the egoic agenda that we talked about last time. It is to stand out, to be better than, to enhance yourself. So this is the same as knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil has an agenda to stand out, to be good, to avoid evil, to be right and not be wrong. And so that's the agenda of the ego. Now that displays itself through religion, for example. So religion say, well, I am part of the in group. 
I, I believe this and you don't believe that. So we kind of look down upon people who do not share our faith as somewhat less than we are, not as good, not as close to God, because our God is based on having the right mental construct about him. But this is not just about religion, it's about politics as well, or it could just be about your career. So for example, I'm having this wonderful career and why do we have that career? Maybe it's a doctor, maybe it's a lawyer or a teacher, because it's the ultimate good in our eyes. Having a great career enhances me. It makes me feel better. So it kind of puts me on this continuum of good and evil closer to the front. Or it could be money. To many people, the ultimate good is money. And that becomes then the focus of our life. That becomes our God, so to speak. And so what happens is all of it is rooted in the ego, and all of that leads to pain and suffering in our life. It leads to conflict. It leads to war. Because in order for this continuum of good and evil to exist, you have to have the two opposites. You have to have good and you have to have evil. And you will always naturally create a continuum out of that which you're good at. And then because you are good at that, or because you feel a sense of empowered and enhanced in that area, there were other people who are less than you, and now they are your enemies. And that ultimately creates conflict. And you said the, the mind under the spell of ego has an amazing capacity to shift responsibility away from itself. So does that mean us always blaming someone else for our faults or for not taking or owning your own situation? Yeah, we will always find someone else to blame for our mistakes. I mean, you think about that in kids, you know, when you were a child, if, if your parents came and said, oh, listen, you did something wrong. Well, we always blame somebody, right? It's just naturally what we do. That's knowledge of good and evil, because it's hard for us to accept that we are wrong, because it diminishes us in our own view, and therefore we're less worthy, less qualified for love. But how can you qualify for unconditional love? You cannot. How does this all wrap up and turn around? Um, how do you live a more freer life knowing some of the things that were described are actually implementing some of the things that were described in this chapter? There's so many different things that you see in this chapter, and, and we kind of only scratched the surface today, but um, ultimately, this story, and when, this is really a description of the Bible to me, and I brought this up because this is a description of the Bible, that you see this story about this tree of knowledge of good and evil interwoven throughout the Bible. And then you come to Jesus. And Jesus now personifies a different tree, the tree of life. And the tree of life is forgiveness. That's the main message. And forgiveness, as I think I pointed out last time, forgiveness is being able to see beyond the superficial you and see your true essence, your oneness with God. So see your spirit, to see your consciousness. That's your true essence. So Jesus is the archetype of this and being able to love your enemies, doing good to those that hate you, uh, pray for those who spitefully use you, laying down your life for others. It's symbolic for all of us of awakening to a life that is beyond the tree of knowledge of good and evil that always, as I said, leads to so much conflict in our life so much division, so much inner pain. And when you begin to wake into this deeper life, when you begin to, and when you wake into that dimension within you, then you're basically beginning to eat from the tree of life. And the tree of life now changes the way you see the world, changes the way you interact with the world, changes the way you interact with other people and, and how you perceive yourself. It changes everything in your life. 
And that's the beauty of the story. So I don't necessarily get into all the details of how that happens. We've discussed it in the past and we'll discuss it in the future. In this chapter, I don't get into it, but I wanted for people to be able to see and read the Bible from a different lens and see the Bible from a different perspective rather than from this traditional way of reading the Bible as, as this is the word of God, just believe it, whatever it says, do it. And, and Jesus came to save you and he has made you righteous. And even that is an egoic way of seeing. So think about this, you know, Christians have said this, your faith is, you know, you believe that you're righteous. What is that? That's saying that righteousness, and we interpret righteousness, and I've done a teaching on this in the past, but we interpret righteousness as morally right and upright. That's how we see it, right? But actually, righteousness, if you, I did a whole study on this, a righteousness in the Bible is seen as caring for the uh, poor, caring for the immigrant, caring for the neglected, caring for people who were different, to be forgiving, to be kind, to be loving. That was righteousness. But, but we interpret righteousness from the lens of good and evil. And we're missing the whole point that it's not about qualifying based on our own merits. It's not about trying to achieve something that God is trying to get through to us, that this is what you need to do to somehow or another get in and be part of the in group. No, it's for all of us just to awaken within to the deepest and truest self, that part, that dimension within us beyond thought that permeates with love. And when we're aware of that, we are free. We're able to forgive. We're able to extend kindness and generosity and compassion and empathy toward others. It's just a natural outflow of who we are because we recognize that the very essence of who we are is consciousness, and that essence is one with God. So what I got from this chapter in wrapping it up was the Bible is a journey. Um, it's a definition of transformation in my mind. If you start from the beginning to the end, you walk through transformations through many people's lives, many people's journeys. On a higher level, you walk through transformation through many areas or, or regions of the world. You walk through transformation through generations. You walk through transformations through life in general. And God has been with those people and guided them through that transformation from the beginning to the end, whenever that end is for that individual, maybe. Um, but I see transformation and it seems like that's the key word in here is transformation. Cause when you started, like you stated in the beginning of being a professor at the college and, 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 and doing those things, your mind probably didn't always think the way it does right now. You were transformed by asking those questions, by thinking differently, by transforming to a different and a better you. And now I see that in the same thing. And that's what the Bible does for people to transform them and not just, it's not the, the rule maker, it's the transformation maker. When people listen, I hope people listen to the third episode because I really deal with the stages of consciousness and this will make sense. You will understand the Bible if you read the stages of consciousness, if you understand the stage of consciousness from egocentrism to ethnocentric to world-centric to Christ-centric. If you understand those four stages, and there are actually more stages than that, but if you understand those four stages, you understand the Bible. You understand the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil can literally be defined by these stages, egocentric, ethnocentric, and world-centric. Now, world-centric is the beginning toward Christ-centric. 
but you will begin to see this in the Bible, and you see that there is a progression toward this point in history, that over these 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years where the people who wrote the Bible, you will see a gradual movement toward this point in history. So now you go back, or you move forward another 2,000 years since Jesus lived, and what you see is a continual progression toward that point. I don't think you've ever seen as many people to, as there are today who really are compassionate, who believe in equality for men and women and and for black and white and people from different nationalities, from different religions and tribes. There is a tremendous, not by everybody, but a lot of people have moved and evolved to that point of becoming more world-centric, which is a beginning toward the next step, of course, is Christ-centric. It is beginning to see yourself in another. We see this, and we see a progression of this, and we see this spoken about. Both Paul and Jesus spoke about this, but probably most of the people back then were ethnocentric, and they didn't get it. But they spoke about it, and so we see that this is what the Bible is about. So it really illustrates our own journey, because we were probably born egocentric. We went through that, and then we became ethnocentric. It was my, my tribe, my people, my religion, my political persuasion, my nation. It, it was about something about me, 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 and my group, my people. And then we kind of began to understand, oh, the world is bigger, people in in uh, Saudi Arabia and people in other parts of the world who may belong to different religion, they're not just evil because they're born there. We, 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 we begin to have more compassion and understanding for one another. And so you see there, there's this progression and, and that's what the Bible is about. So when we're now talking about this Christ-centric consciousness where ultimately God is in each and every one of us, whether you're Muslim, you're Buddhist, whether you're Hindu, whether you're atheist, whether you're a Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you whatever it is, it doesn't matter. At the very core in, in each and every one of us, God, there's a dimension within us that is one with God, and we are one with one another. And the whole purpose of the Bible is to lead us to the point where we begin to see ourselves and begin to awaken more and more to this reality that we move beyond the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we literally, as Jesus did, stretch out his hand at the tree of life. And what that is symbolic of is he died to the ego. There was a death of the ego. There was a death to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now there's a resurrection of a new kind of life that is based on love, grace, and peace. And that is inclusive of everyone. And that is the message of the Bible. Well said, well said. And I think that is a great area to in this chapter five discussion uh, because it's it, it can't be described much better than that and and that's what we all want to live in that type of love um in that christ-centric realm and area of life so again thanks so much david thanks for listening to today's podcast of path of love with david youngren this podcast is produced by the Path of Love Center, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, and sharing it with a friend. Together, we can grow an inclusive community around the transformational work of love. To learn more about Path of Love and get daily wisdom seeds sent to your email inbox, visit pathoflovecenter.com. You can also download David Youngren's guided audio meditation, Healing Stillness, for free at our website. From all of us at Path of Love, may love, joy, and peace be with you always.